0: greetings princeps and welcome to the 17th episode of the god machine cast a weekly podcast dedicated to discussing the adeptus titanicus wargame produced by games workshop in this show i'm going to cover recent community news games workshop news a another small aside rant perhaps and then finally Conclude my coverage of the stratagems by covering the core stratagems found in the core rulebook. But before all that, podcast news. Um, keeping it quick this week, um, please join me on my Facebook and Twitter account. The Twitter account is at castengine. I'm attempting to do almost daily updates at the moment on both Twitter and Facebook. At the moment they've both been about the same content, but here in the next week or two the content will differ. Uh, The Twitter is going to concentrate mostly on pictures of my models, both Titanicus and unrelated. The Facebook page is going to move into covering small articles and thoughts I'm having about many of the Titanicus projects I'm working on. Some of those posts will also be included on the Twitter feed. Additionally, as always, can you recommend this podcast to your friends, leave reviews on Facebook and your podcasting app of choice, and uh, share my media where you can. Uh, All of it gets my message out and helps build a larger community, and that's a good thing. Before we move into the variety of news I've got, I'm going to quickly review what hobby I've been up to. I've actually done a fair bit this week. Uh, basically, I've almost finished the Warbringer. Uh, last night I was able to finish putting the second coat of the metallics on the main body. I've just got the rest of the armour panels to finish off and then start gluing it all together for the final stage of highlighting, weathering, transfers and uh, yeah. So I'm pretty happy. My next big project is working out how much scenery I've got and how much more I need to add. Um, for a couple of reasons I'll discuss here in a minute, um, it looks like I'm going to have a couple of events coming up that I'm going to have to provide the scenery for. Ideally, I think I need to be able to provide enough scenery to give a good scattering over three tables. Um, because of that, I'm probably thinking that I'm going to need to make sure I've got the scenery for that. I'm pretty close, but I may need to buy some more or acquire some. Um, but I'll talk about that here in a minute. There's a community question that leads already to this. But, yeah, so once the Warbringer's finished, I'm going to start painting another scenery piece or two, uh, get those knocked out before I work on the next Titan. Okay, Games Workshop news. Um, This week there was an email sent out letting everyone know that very shortly, I think May 30th, pre-ordering of new products will begin again, and that's pretty cool. I'm going to be interested to see what goes out for pre-order in that first week. There is some Titanicus stuff that they've been teasing, and I hope that's going to come soon. Uh, but they also talk about a number of items are going to get a price rise. Now, to be honest, my view on this is it's fair. It's been a while before, since they raised prices. And I get the way they do pricing doesn't really affect the age of the box, but more sort the price codes probably internally. So it's a bunch of items with series of price codes that they're being raised. Most of it appears to be the high value large models and the material they make in China. Basically, for Titanicus, that means it looks like all of our scenery kits are going to increase in price. Which is a shame, they were cost really well at the moment. But they are, in my opinion, some of the best kits in the Games Workshop game. So, it wouldn't hurt too much to see them go up a little bit. Um, I'm going to wait to see how much they go up by for making huge judgments about it. But if you're on the fence of buy- about buying some, now's a pretty good time to go out and pick some up. That said, as they're maintaining the same recommended retail price for Intermittent, independent stockists. I suspect you're still going to get good deals on these kits for a long time, and I don't see the price going up by a huge amount on the Games Workshop web store. Okay, community news. Well, it appears that life is starting to reappear in our community. People are starting to poke their heads out of their homes and look around to see if it's safe out. I think in many cases this is a little too early, but in some areas it's okay. And I definitely think it's about now we can start planning for where we're going to be in another four months, you know, August, September onwards. So as such, I've started tentatively planning some events for August and September. Uh, In August I'm planning an event for some close friends uh, here in Oklahoma, and then in September I started a conversation with the guys who run the Iron Halo events. This has been a really cool 40k tournament held up in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, uh, which is just north of Tulsa. Hopefully, uh, I'm going to be able to squeeze a one-day event into their space. Um, I'm currently trying to work out the number of tables I would need, aka the number of players. So at this point, as it's all really up in the air about what I'm doing, what the nature of the event is, um, I would really like to know who would be interested in attending. Now, I'm asking some of my friends locally, but yeah, if you're a listener to this podcast and you want to travel in to play a one-day event... Uh, Let me know. Um, That way I can gauge interest and gauge the amount of space I'm going to need. And, well, the amount of terrain. Um, I was thinking, in my head, that I was going to try and work out a one-day campaign to run. Uh, I've got some ideas, as I mentioned in the last episode. And I think i be got a cram ace, like, three-round event in. Two smaller games and then one larger game at the end of the day. Uh, or maybe just three smaller skirmish games. I don't know. I need to sort of sit down and think about it. So that's uh, my news. Uh, If you happen to be running your own event, uh, let me know, and I'll gladly advertise it for you. I know people are probably still where I am, being very hesitant to see how things fall, and I understand that. Uh, I'm very interested in hearing about other events that are travelable from my home in Oklahoma. I really want to get some games in. Um, Yeah, I'm intending to wait at least a few more months to see how things fall. But planning can start now. Planning is good. Okay. So, a quick community question. I was contacted by a regular, uh, Nick, who um, wanted some input into what I was thinking about scenery for a table. Uh, He's looking at designing some himself and, uh, you know, wanted some opinions from me. So I'm gonna quickly touch on some ideas that I've been knocking around in my head, um, and I hope it helps Nick. First of all, um, what's the appropriate amount of terrain on a Titanicus table? The answer depends on the type of battlefield you're trying to represent. There isn't a one-size-fits-all terrain in the world. There isn't a one-size-fits-all terrain on the table either. And I think as a community we need to get past the idea that there needs to be a necessary amount of terrain to play a game of Titanicus. What we need to understand is certain types of terrain setups will favor some Titans over others. And perhaps in larger events, like the ones I'm starting to run around in my head, or in a gaming club, you should provide a variety of different styles of table. Now, in the campaign sections, in both Shadow and Iron and Titan Death, uh, the amount of terrain on the table is talked about as being a factor in the terrain you're fighting over. For example, the Shadow and Iron book talks about uh, the type of terrain you'd find depending on what type of planet you're fighting on. A Forge world, for example, has dense terrain. An Agri world has basically an open board. And it talks about, in a section, what that their sort of dense rugged and open means. Um, Open terrain only uh, includes a scattering of light scenery, rugged terrain has a balance of scenery, and dense terrain has lots of scenery, creating a battlefield with lots of blocking terrain. Sadly, the book doesn't give any real definitions to what it means to be light or blocking. So I think I can put some definition to it, or at least what I think the definition should be in my mind. Light terrain should be terrain that will get in the way of movement, so dangerous terrain, difficult terrain, and provide cover, so minuses to hit, for knights and maybe warhounds. Um, There shouldn't be any scenery that can really block line of sight to a warlord, uh, or block line of sight from a warlord, though with the smaller bits of scenery, knights and warhounds will be able to hide from them, which is the balance you've got to strike. At this time, Games Workshop really doesn't make any good scenery for this scale a lot of the scenery they make want to be wants to be a bit bigger perhaps the sector mechanicus stuff is fairly small but it really falls into the rugged category in my mind i need to sit down and think about how i would make scenery for this particular scale um i don't have actually any strong ideas at the moment and it's something i want to work on i just got to pick the type of open scenery i'm going to make first um an agri world sounds cool um i've always wanted to make some fields of corn and stuff uh, out of like um brushes and things, and I'm sure I could do something, and it'd look pretty cool if done right. But I've had some thoughts about how I could make um, woods and such. I wouldn't necessarily model every tree, but sort of model an area of trees focusing on the canopy and around the edge where the trees break, um, but that probably requires 3D printing or something. Um, but it'd look cool if it could be done. The next scale up is Rugged, and in that scale you want to be have one or two pieces of scenery that will block completely a Warlord. But again, then it should be majority of medium-sized scenery that will kind of give cover to uh, Arriva. Light urban terrain would work, as would Sector Mechanicus if you built the silos into a couple of really big lumps. But I actually think uh, the classic uh, polystyrene hills work really well for this level. You can create some nice blocking scenery, L-shaped cliff faces that you have to climb over. it will really make some interesting scenery to fight over. And it's probably similar what I'm going to end up doing. Rocky enscarpments and the like. But still, at this terrain level, you should be looking at plenty of open fire lanes for the largest titans. Um, this one's all about balance. It's the midpoint. And then finally, you have the dense terrains. These are your city fights, your industrial wasteland, and the stuff that looks much more evocative on the table, to be honest. This is the train level a lot of people are sort of fighting to get to, where warlords have to really walk around to get some good fire lanes. Um, yeah, and it's good, but I think you can make most of the scenery out of the um, current scenery available at by Games Workshop. Uh, and if I was looking at making my own scenery set, like uh, Nick is doing, I probably would be looking away from a dense ce- scenery type. So I'm going go back to Nick's core question. What sort of scenery should he make? I think if I was going to sit down and design my own table, and try and do something unique. I would either do something that could represent a sort of open table, which in Shadow of Iron is the research worlds, the agri worlds, or the ravaged worlds. And finally, um, the rugged worlds are the night worlds and the war worlds. So you're looking at some pretty impressive pieces of fortification, really, or other sort of larger agri material, I suppose. In the future, I'm going to do a full episode talking about terrain. Um, I definitely think it's one of those big things we need to talk about more in the game. Um, There is a push, at least in my gaming group, and I know in other places, um, to have tables with a lot of scenery on them. And I think the game's designed to be played in many conditions, and um, I think especially when we look towards events, um, we need to have a variety of tables with a variety of terrain amounts. Um, That's what I'm going to endeavor to do when I run events. Um, And I think next time you play a game, you should talk to your opponent about what type of battlefield you're playing on. Uh, Roll a dice, randomly decide. Uh, Randomly changing up that battlefield terrain density will affect your game. And hopefully help keep your games feeling fresh, as uh, the same strategies will not always work. Okay, the final segment before I get on to the actual main topic. So, on my Facebook page in the last week, there has been a very interesting conversation. I've been posting up some pictures of my models, some Titanicus, some not. And the other day, I posted up a model that was not one of my Titanicus Titans. It was one of the knights I'd finished my own warriors army back in, like, 2014. Um, I posted it up, and I called it an Imperial Knight-Titan conversion. At which point, a fan of the show, uh, Tom responded with hashtag not a titan at which point we engaged in a conversation about were knights titans um which was an interesting one in my mind i'd always presumed a knight was a type of titan a knight titan and there was many places on the internet and i felt like in games which material that referred to knights as knight titans i went digging and digging and digging and continued my conversations with tom on that nature and then finally i realized i been completely misled. Although, uh, back when the T- the Night Kit was released back in 2014, many people were referring to it as a Knight Titan. It was never the official designation from Games Workshop, uh, despite the fact that half the online shops uh, out there referred to the box set as the Night Titan box set. Even the receipt of the item that I brought labelled it a Knight Titan, yet it was never the Games Workshop official designation. It was almost as if the community back in 2014 uh, wanted it to be a Titan, which at the time I think we did. I mean, this is the arrival of Knights changed 40k, and there was a fear from them, and I think the additional sticking the name Titan on it uh, sort of came from that fear. But that then stuck and wormed its way into my brain, as I know it wormed its way into other brains around here, and we just carried on calling all knights, night Titans. Um, which, yeah, is interesting. I hadn't really given it much thought uh, until I made the post, and I consider, whenever I pull those models out, oh, so here are my night Titans. Um, so that's all I said on the post, and I hadn't, you know, hadn't had that time to realise and really process what I was talking about. Um, so I thank Tom for that. Uh, that's calling me out. Thanks for making me think about it and do the research. Um, yeah. Still going to keep digging. I'm sure somewhere there is the reason we call Knights Night Knight, Knight Titans more than just a random happenstance. There must be some publication somewhere. Maybe the initial shipment listing from uh, Games Workshop. Uh, something to put it out there, especially to the retailers, that this product was called Night Titan. Um, yeah. One day I'll find it. Though if someone out there knows, uh, I really want to know. Um, also, if you think the Knights are Titans for a similar reason, uh, please, yeah, speak up about it, talk to me. Um, there's obviously some Mandela effect going on or something, and it's pretty, yeah. Originally, I'd planned this segment to have a conversation about the similarities between Knights and Titans and whether we should be calling them a type of Titan. Um, but it became a lot more about, you know, where did this weird name come from when I was doing my research, and that sort of ate my time. Uh, I may return to this in the future, but uh, not for a while. Okay, so now we're going to move to the main section of the show, which is going to be a conversation about the stratagems in the core rulebook. Once I've covered these, I will try and tie all the stratagem episodes up into a bow uh, for my final conclusions. And, um, yeah, and then I'll talk about where I'm going from there with stratagems. Um, Yeah. Okay, so these stratagems are found on page 64 and 65 of the core rulebook. Uh, there's an opening paragraph talking about that it takes more than weapons to win a battle, and the stratagems represent the other elements Princeps is use to bring bear to war. Just a quick editor's note. Um, I noticed when we were listening to this episode that in one part of this show, I say the word Warhound when I meant Warlord. It's quite clear what I meant uh, in that section, Uh, so when you hear it, uh, just understand that it's the Warlord. It's worth five points. I did try editing the individual word out, but I was having trouble not losing the entire section, and I didn't really feel like re-recording the entire bit to fix that one word, so this will suffice for today. So the first stratagem I'm going to talk about today is Noble Sacrifice. It is a one point stratagem and it is a Tricks and Tactics. So with this stratagem, you can only be using a titan that has been structurally compromised. If you have one of them, you can play the stratagem, at which point you roll a d6, adding one if the reactor status for that titan is in an orange level, or adding three if it's in a red level. Um based on the result of that dice, your Titan is going to just die in a weird and fun way. On a 1 to 4, it suffers a magazine detonation, which is a fairly sizable boom, but doesn't ignore void shields. And a five to six, as in the, will be the result of a catastrophic meltdown. Yeah, um that's pretty cool. Uh if you've got a Titan that's in the red and structurally compromised right by a pile of enemy titans, you can basically guarantee a. Uh, Really big explosion. And we've all seen the cases where one catastrophically melting down Titan takes out another two or three around it. So this isn't bad for one point. Though there is a downside. At the end of the battle you will lose a number of victory points equal to the Titan's scale. And that's my problem with this stratagem. It would be really fun if you didn't have to pay a victory point penalty. But I think it's one you keep in your back pocket occasionally. Uh, it's not a card I take much. Um, if I'm going to play a card that means that I'm going to go up with a big explosion, there are better versions. Um, the Loyalists have the good two-point version from um, Shadow and Iron, and there are a couple other variants that allow you to explode better when you do. So the next stratagem is Outflank. It doesn't have a standard cost. This stratagem is played when you deployed, basically. When you deploy a titan using the outflank stratagem, you place it in reserve. The titan then ha- comes on, on one of the sides of the battlefield following the rules in the core book. It's kind of complicated and I'm not going to read them all here, but basically it shows up during the second round of the game, which is pretty cool. The cost for this stratagem is half of the titan scale rounded down. So 5 for a warhound, 4 for a reaver, 3 for a warhound. It can also be used on a Banner of Knights, which is a single point for a Banner of um, Questorus, or two points for a Banner of Serastus, which is where this stratagem really shines. Our flanking unit of Knights um, is really good. Um, Making them appear in the enemy's backline is priceless. That said, you are trading an activation in the first turn for this stratagem, which has its own flaws. So it's not a strategy you enter lightly. This is one you're already planning on taking when building your list. There are plenty of Legios that make really good use of this stratagem. Uh, Legio Ordax, especially. Uh, I know I'm looking at that for next week. And the outflank stratagem is one I really like running with them. Um, it works very well with our ambushing styles and allows you to bring reinforcements in. Due to the way the rules work, uh, there's a great psychological element to this stratagem. You sort of let your opponent know which flank they're coming, the titans are coming in from. So they have time to react. but. You know, a four-foot l- flank is still pretty long, so there's still a lot of ways to push an opponent out of line. Um, yeah, overall it's really fun. At some point I'm going to pay the five points for my entire stratagem to be outflanking a Warlord. Uh, I think it'd be hilarious. Um, yeah. So the next stratagem is a two-point stratagem called Sabotage. You play the stratagem at the start of any phase. That's not just strategy phases, that means shooting phase or the movement phase. Uh, immediately after you play the stratagem, uh, you pick a unit and then you remove that unit's current order, if any. Uh, you then literally roll an order dice. The unit immediately takes the order shown. Uh, if the order cannot be issued, uh, you re roll. But there aren't that many cases where you can't issue an order to a unit. Uh, knights, mostly. This is a really interesting stratagem. For two points, it's probably too much. But it's a really fun way to um, throw a spanner in enemies' plans. Uh, They have a titan that's planning on, you know, full striding again, Eh, just roll the dice. Um, You have a titan who's planning on firing first, roll the dice, in all likelihood they will not be firing again, Uh, at least firing first, Um, they may do something, you know, actively harmful, Full stride, charge, probably not great on a titan that was aiming to fire first. Uh, I mean, occasionally you're going to get shut down, which is even better. Um, but most of the time you're just basically going to disrupt the enemy's plans for a turn. Overall, I like it, but as I said at the start, the two points for this is kind of steep. It's one use, and there are better stratagems. Um, that said, given the fear of the shutdown order, it really cannot be played as a one-point stratagem. Um, rolling this up and shutting down an enemy Titan is definitely worth the two points, even if the chance is on the unlikelier side. Well, there's a one in six chance, but still. Next up is Thermal Mines. The classic two-point stratagem that I'm sure everyone's tried using at some point. Basically, this stratagem is played immediately after an enemy unit finishes moving. Uh, that unit then suffers D3 strength 10 hits to its legs if it's a titan. It automatically bypasses shield saves. And notice it says shield saves, not just uh, void shields which means even knights do not get their iron shield save against this stratagem. I know at strength 10, many knight units won't be getting a save anyway, but this does stop the Cerastus iron gauntlet from giving them the plus one. Overall, this is a really effective stratagem. Sure, D3 strength 10 hits may be a one strength 10 hit, but you're going to get lucky occasionally and roll the three strength 10 hits to the legs and really hurt someone. Uh, there's a good chance of crippling a titan pretty quickly, and I've seen it do a lot of damage to enemy titans. Um, yeah, overall, it's really good fun. It's well worth the two points, and probably the stratagem I sort of mark as the upper limit of a two-point stratagem. Um, this is about the effectiveness you want to be getting from two stratagem points. On a similar note, we then move to the Void Breaker Shield. Uh, this stratagem is played like the Thermal Mines immediately after an enemy unit has finished moving. Uh, but it can only be used against a target with Void Shields, so not knights. Basically, when the enemy's finished moving, you roll a d6. On a two or more... The opposing player must make a number of shield saves equal to the number you just rolled on that d6. If you rolled a 1, no effect, but you can use the stratagem a second time. This is sort of the other side of the coin. Whereas Thermal Mine is the highest power I'd give to someone with a 2 point stratagem, this is the lowest. Uh, I mean it's worth the 2 points, you have the capacity of stripping 6 shields, which will make most titans shieldless. But there are issues. One, it doesn't stop a titan going voids to fall. And making 6 2 plus saves isn't unheard of. Uh, secondly, um, this is played during the movement phase, mostly. Which means you haven't got the rest of your shooting to come in and quickly attack that titan's sh- no, its shields are down. Um, you won't have shots lined up because your titan's on first fire. Probably won't have the arcs lined up right to target someone who's just finished moving. Even if you get your, the enemy shields down, they have a chance of getting them back up in the repair phase before you get to fire on them. There are just much better ways to strip enemy shields with stratagems than this stratagem. It's okay, but not great. Probably should be a one-pointer, uh, but I can see the arguments of why it is a two-point stratagem. You theoretically the could play it in the shooting phase if her Titan was to do a f- all ahead full ahead fall, and at which point, you know, then you've opened a Titan up for the rest of your army to shoot at, which is pretty good. Um, but yeah, it's just not as effective as many other two-point stratagems. Okay, so now we move to the classic range support stratagems, the first being the two-point artillery bombardment. Much like the Thermal Mines, this is a good standard stratagem, and um, a good stratagem for its points. Uh, Every turn, uh, you get to place a five-inch blast marker anywhere on the battlefield. Any unit touched by the marker suffers a strength eight hit, two strength eight hits if the central blast marker is entirely over the base. It really isn't that many hits. It really isn't that strong of a weapon, but you're shooting this every single turn. You land this, you know, over a unit of knights, it's going to hurt them. You put it on a titan, it's a good way to damage a, or to finish off an already damaged titan. Um, the problem is it's going to scatter. It scatters by d10, so it's never really going to hit the same location twice. Um, You get to fire it every single turn. So it's just a free strength 8 shot. Um, I kind of like it. It annoys the opponent. Um, Yeah. It's not going to make or break the game. I kind of wish you could take this stratagem more than once. Um, If you got in a situation where you had 6 stratagem points, rocking in with 3 of these isn't really going to change the game. You're just going to put a lot of blast markers out there. Um, My only criticism with this stratagem is it does take a lot of time. Scattering shots is a pain. There's a reason they got rid of it in... 8th uh, edition, 40k, um, but it is cool, and um, nothing, it's, it's classic, and um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's about proportional to a lot of the other range support in the other books, so like I say, it earns its place as a two-point stratagem, and one, you know, everyone thinks about taking. Uh, next up in the range support is the Lance Strike, it's another two-point stratagem. Uh, unlike Artillery Bombardment, this stratagem is only played once. Um, When played, you place a 3-inch blast marker anywhere on the battlefield and scattered by d6. So it's a lot more accurate, but a much smaller range. Any unit touched by the uh, marker takes d3 strength 10 hits, or two d3 strength 10 hits if the central hole of the black marker is entirely over its base. This stratagem is a great way to make knight banners disappear, uh, to completely destroy a titan that has had its shields down. You get a Warlord uh, without its shields down, and you orbital land strike it. Uh, the chances are you're going to be able to keep that central hole of the Blast Marker over the enemy Titan. And you're doing 2d3 strength 10 hits, that's in all likelihood going to be about 4 strength 10 hits to a random location, which is going to really hurt the Warlord. Uh, there's just no way around it. Definitely worth the two points, but it's also a stratagem you need to keep in your back card. There is going to be an impulse to play it the first turn and blow up a Titan. Um, no, it's really an end game stratagem. Uh, When you're starting to run out of titans to use the kill shots, this is a great way to play it. Just, yeah, hold on to it. It's worth its weight in gold near the end of the game. So then we get the one-point stratagem, Blind Barrage. Uh, You pick any unit on the battlefield, friend or foe, and uh, basically, for the duration of that one round, any attacks that target it or are made by it suffer a minus two penalty to hit for the duration of the round. This is a really interesting stratagem. It's a great way to you, to provide cover for your own Titan if they need you to pull out an emergency repair and you aren't planning on shooting with them. Uh, but it's also a fun way to block the enemy Titan that was just lining up for the kill shot, uh, or even a charging Titan. I mean, it's to hit, it's not shooting attacks, it's also close combat attacks. So you can throw a penalty on that, you know, close combat warlord before it finally gets into your line. Which is a really good way to annoy your opponent. I really enjoy this stratagem. Uh, It is one point. It can go on nearly any list. It is a regular one I take. Um, The fact that I can use it to protect my titans or hamper the enemy titans means I always find a use for it in a game. Um, In my opinion, it is one of the best stratagems in the game, hands down. Uh, Its utilitarian nature is just fantastic. And uh, they're the core stratagems of the book. Uh, We have the battlefield assets, which I'm going to cover here in a second, and the tertiary objectives, which, again, like all the other tertiary objectives in the other books, I'm going to cover in a future show. Uh, The tertiary objectives, although they use stratagem points, are used in match play to score additional victory points. And I'm going to address them when I start talking about the actual match play rules. Any conversation about victory points needs to be done together, so I'll do it then. So then... Yes, we have the Battlefield assets. Battlefield assets are represented on the table as miniatures, and you purchase them using extraction points at the start of the game. Battlefield assets have their own rules about how to shoot them and how to destroy them. Uh, they're in the book, and you can read them if you care about that. Uh, basically, you place them in the game in your own deployment zone, unless otherwise stated, and they'll give you a series of effects for having them, and you can sort of play the card every turn where possible. The first one of these is the Command Bastion. It is a one point. Asset. Basically, if you fail an order and you have a titan within 18 inches of Command Bastion, you can issue another order. Only get one more order to be issued after you fail the command check, uh, but it's better than nothing. And if you have a backline warlord that you know is going to pass, you can put it next to the Command Bastion and basically sit it there and allow the rest of your units to activate their orders. And if they fail, no biggie, you're going to get your free one to allow you to uh, roll him anyway. It's not bad for one point. The next asset is the Apocalypse Missile Strongpoint. Um, this is a fun one. In the Enact Stratagem's step of the strategy phase, you activate this uh, unit, at which point it can fire a Apocalypse Missile battery at anywhere on the table. Um, the Strongpoint has a ballistic skill of 4+, and a 360 firing arc. So it's kind of fun, especially as it has barrage. Basically, pick an enemy unit and throw four dice at them. I love putting this in a little bit of Area Terrain where I can get a little bit of an additional Minus to hit to it. And um, just start picking off enemy Titans. Um, it's never going to destroy an enemy Titan, but you may force them to lose a shield or two. Which is okay. Now as I said earlier with the Voidbreaker shields, stripping shields in the Straction phase has its downsides. They are going to repair it. Uh, but for two points, being able to do it every single turn is kind of fun. Um, it has other uses too, and there's a good habit of being able to finish off a Titan with a targeted attack. Um, yeah, it's okay. The key with this one is its range. With a range of 120 inches, you can shoot at anything on the battlefield. It is barrage, so you can shoot at anything with an additional minus penalty. And the chances are you won't be able to see them. Uh, there is another stratagem that allows you to put forward observers out, which is really fun. I mean, just use all your stratagem points for a trick just to be able to drop Apocalypse Missile launchers on people. But yeah, I like it. Uh, Next up is the Plasma Generator. It's a one-point asset. Basically, if you have a Titan within one inch of a Plasma Generator, instead of activating in the movement phase and moving or shooting, uh, you can declare you are drawing Plasma from the Plasma Generator, and you can lower your reactor level by D3. (sighs) This isn't as good as it sounds on paper. I mean, on paper it looks like a way to reduce your heat, but it just doesn't work. Uh, you're skipping an activation, which is never great. I mean, you aren't skipping it. You have to activate the Titan to pull the trick off. But you aren't moving. You aren't repositioning yourself. You aren't taking the uh, first fire shot. Um, and you've got to be within one inches of it. So it's not like you've suddenly got a hot Titan and you can get it over there to fix it. Um, if the range of it was longer, sure, it would be probably a little better. But generally, the Titans I want to quickly drain heat from are my Warhounds. And they are going to be nowhere near my t- table edge when I need the heat drain from them. Um, it's just a weird, weird unit and I don't really like it. Um, it's definitely not that great. So next up is the Macro Cannon Battery. It's a two-point asset and in the next stratagem step of the strategy phase, the only player can make an attack with the Macro Cannon. Uh, it has a pretty small profile, short range 12 inches, long range 24, minus one at long range, it shoots with two dice, but it is strength 10 in ordnance which is pretty impressive. Um, yeah, I kind of like it. I mean, it's a little gun. Um, the enemy has to get pretty close. But when they get into your deployment zone, um, you can really start hitting them with it. I have killed a fair few titans with my battlefield asset. Um, if I was in the stratagem phase, so it's a good way to pick off an enemy titan that's been crippled before they get around to making a repair roll. Um, yeah, I kind of... I, I really dig it. It's a, it's a fun little stratagem. Uh, definitely worth the two points. Its range is a bit of a problem. Um, not, I mean, it's only got a ballistic skill of uh, four plus. So, you know, if the enemy is within two, over 20 uh, in the sort of over the 12 inch band, it, it's not going to hit that much. Yeah. I don't know much more I can say about it, really. I don't take it as much as I used to. Uh, the range has become a problem. It's easy to keep away from it. Um, but there are times and places to take it. And it's one I definitely think about taking a lot. Next up is the Two Point Asset Communication Relay. Um, It's okay. You subtract one from any command checks for enemy units that are within 18 inches of the relay. This is okay. Some problems that you have to deploy in your deployment zone, and most of the time that means the enemy aren't going to be within 18 inches for a while. When they get close, it's going to start causing additional issues with charging and the like. Very good against knights, especially when you start trying to shake them. Um, but it's only a minus one. Uh, it is a good area effect, and the enemy really isn't going to be targeting it to get rid of it. Um, so it's not terrible. Um, not sure it's worth the full two points. Probably a one point asset, really, but it is what it is. Um, not one I'm going to rush to take, but it's okay. Finally, we get the asset, Void Shield Relay. It is worth two points, and it, for what it does, is really cheap. Basically, failed void shield saves can be rerolled for units that are win two inches of a friendly void shield relay and that have not moved. So, you put your Warlord and a couple of Warhounds in a regio Maniple down next to a void shield relay. You don't move any of them. You're going to share shields. Uh, you can push one of the Warhound shields' um, voids to fall every time an enemy sh- shots income. And your entire blob gets a 2 plus rerollable save. Yeah. That's really gross. Really, really gross. Um, For two points, it is a steal. Um, Yeah. Um, It's not as outrageous as several of the other stratagems in the game. Uh, You do have to stay within two inches of it, so you are going to basically create a gun line. But if you want to build a fortress, it is an incredible stratagem to take. Um, Pretty quickly, you're going to get the enemy targeting the stratagem rather than your titans until it's taken out. Um, so that's something to think about, but, um, yeah, it's also a stratagem I'm definitely thinking of eratering when I run events. It's just really good. Um, not as good as, say, Scatterable Minds, but it's up there. Um, yeah. And that's it. They are the stratagems in the core book, the stratagems we all got to know and love before the supplements started coming out. Um, they're probably the stratagems you've all used the most, because they are the ones in the core book and the ones everyone's got cards for if they brought the core rule box, um, Yeah, I like them all. There aren't that many bad ones. I mean, I think the Plasma Generator and, um, and Boy breaker Shields are probably the worst, but every other stratagem has a good place to use it. Um, I've used them all. I like them all. Uh, there definitely are some outstanding stratagems amongst them. Thermal Mines, Void Shield Relay, Blind Barrage are all really good. Um, But I think people should be paying attention to stratagems like Sabotage a bit. It has a place in the game and it's pretty good. Overall, these stratagems are pretty well balanced. They definitely were the stratagems being used when the game was being tested. They all add something to the game and don't really detract a huge amount. And in a standard game of Titanicus, these are the stratagems I would let anyone take with no additional worry. Um, in some campaigns there are some conversations about unlocking stratagems, and I think that's a pretty cool idea, but these stratagems should be the core of any uh, princeps hand. Um, yeah. And that's it. I've covered all the stratagems. Um, well, have I? Yeah, there was that one other stratagem which released release white dwarf. So I probably should take a moment to talk about it. So, this Christmas, there was a gift set of cards put out in the White Dwarf. Uh, one of those cards was for Titanicus. It was a tricks and tactics stratagem called the Miracle of Mars, and it is worth three points. This card has some pretty clunky rules. For a start, you play the stratagem at the start of the damage control phase, and you play the card next to a titan. The, titan then re- the card then remains there next to the titan's command terminal, but at any point, uh, you then can play the card, and uh, call the Titan's Reactor. To see how effective your calling is, you roll 2d10 and add 5. Yeah, and then based on that number, different things could happen. On a 7 to 15, you reduce the reactor by d3. From a 16 to 24, you reduce it by d6. And a result of 25 or more, the Reactor Tracker is moved to its leftmost hole. Yeah, this stratagem is really, really bizarre. Um, for a start, why are you rolling 2d10 and adding 5? Uh, it makes no difference mechanically. Just roll 2d10. Um, it's maths for the sake of maths. Um, secondly, um, the order of activation of this is really weird. So, you're in the damage control phase, you have a really hot titan that's probably about to explode. You play the card at the start of the damage control phase. But then you don't get to play it until you next activate the titan. Uh, Which means there's a chance your titan's going to explode before you use the card. Which means you've got to play it the turn before on a titan you're going to expect to get hot. Um, yeah. Three points. It is just not that great. I mean, sure, you have a titan you know you're about to do some really risky stuff with. Probably a Warhound. And you're going to need to clean its reactor before the start of the next um, damage control phase. yeah. This card would be so much better if you just played it, rolled 2d10, and then reduced your reactor by that amount. Uh, this additional level just makes it complicated and makes it kind of useless. Um, it's definitely not worth the three points. There are... I can't say there are better ways to get rid of heat. There aren't. Um, so yeah, I get its value, but it's just clunky. It's definitely a rule that was written quickly to get published in the White Dwarf and not one they were going to include in a core rule rulebook. Um, I don't think it should be accepted in general play. Um, talk to your friends before you consider putting it in your deck it's okay and not many people have the card anyway so it's not that much to worry about on the positive news uh it's not that great so people aren't clamoring to get a hold of it um yeah so with that uh we're finally through with all the stratagems that are available at this time i'm sure it will change with the next book uh they always seem to but here we are so what do i think Well, I think we have some serious um, stratagem bloat. I'm actually not looking forward to adding more stratagems to the game. Um, I think we said we're around 70 is the amount I counted, and it's taken me four episodes to cover them all. I mean, I haven't really spent that much time talking about them. I haven't even started talking about the ideas of how you can play two stratagems together to create unusual effects, let alone the legio-specific stratagems or the stratagems being played by the... um, Night Houses, which I will get around to at one point, but that's going to be in the future. All in all, um, I kind of like stratagems. Um, they do add something to the game, and the more I've read up on them, the more I want to see them included in every game I play. Um, they do add variation to the game that otherwise could be pretty stale. I mean, we only have four types of titans and they only have a select number of weapons. So they add a unique flavouring you can throw into any game that will create some unusual games. The stratagems do a great many things. Uh, They introduce a lot of parts that would be in a sort of epic game if we were to play that level. Um, They keep the focus of the game on the titans uh, without making it seem that the other parts of the war aren't going on. There are a lot of stratagems that are costed randomly and need some adjustment. And I think a lot of people can house rule them where necessary. Uh, There are some very powerful stratagems that probably should be limited, and some weaker stratagems that should be encouraged to be played more, or rules need to be slightly improved. So going forward, in episodes that aren't legio Pacific, I'm going to be picking a Maniple, and then picking five points of stratagems that I would take to support the Maniple. Uh, this is what I've been doing in a lot of the Legio episodes, where I've been creating my sample lists, but this would be more of a unaligned Legio, or where the Legio doesn't really matter. Um, just something for everyone to get people thinking about how you can build combined arms. Um, I think there's some real good bonuses hidden away there. But I would reach out to the community. If you've got some good ideas of how you can combine certain uh, stratagems and put them together, uh, let me hear about it. Um, I know there are quite a few out there. That said, one thing I want to touch on before we close is that many times through these stratagem episodes I've been talking about, I would include that in my top 20 stratagems, and I'd take that in my deck. As I mentioned in my first stratagem episode, one solution I have for stratagem bloat is people pre-choosing a deck of stratagems and then randomly drawing a couple of cards for those stratagems at the start of the game. So the question is, what stratagems would I take in my deck? So I quickly strapped down and wrote my top 20 stratagems. Um, Yeah. Okay, so these are going to be a number of stratagems that are for everyone, and then a couple of loyalist and traitor stratagems. And these are presented in no particular order. Okay, so starting at the top, the first stratagem I would take in my deck are the Quake Shells. Simple artillery strike, some fun effects. This would be followed by the augmented Servitor clades. Uh, Bonuses on repair are always good. Uh, Following this is the veteran princeps. Again, command checks. Quick modification to my titan, really good. Uh, I then have both types of mines, shock and thermal, both really useful to have in my deck. Uh, Then there'll be Blind Barrage from the Core set, as I mentioned today, it's just really good fun. Uh, Multi-use, utilitarian, always fun to have around. Then we have a pair of Battlefield Assets, the Macro Cannon and the Apocalypse Missile Launcher. Uh, Out of all the Battlefield Assets, I like these the most, they get the most use, and it's always good to have a second weapon on the table. Speaking of weapons, the Experimental Weapon and Overcharge Cannon cards are both always fun to have. Uh, again, giving my titans a slight, subtle upgrade is really good. Then finally, for the stratagems that either side can take, uh, the Cursed Earth stratagem is just good fun. This one's in here because it's good fun, not because it's strategically great, but it's one I usually like taking anyway, so it's going to make my top 20. Then if I was playing a traitor, I would probably look at these stratagems. Uh, Profane Blessing, because rerolls are fun. Ethlethoric Infusion, because it's really fun to be able to repair a titan, even if there's a chance it's going to blow up. Uh, War Master's Portion. Again, rerolls and pluses are always beneficial. And Bloodthirsty, because if I'm playing Traitors, I'm probably going to be playing a Cornate legion, and I just want to get in close. On the other side of things, if I was playing a Loyalist Legion, which is what I do most of the time, uh, I like the idea of the Iron Resolve stratagem. Um, just being able to automatically pass a command check is useful. Um, the Weapons to Fall stratagem is also really good when you've got a Titan that's in a clinch and it's probably going to die anyway. Uh, Long Retreat is, you know... It's the Corsair Maniple, and I can't say anything more about that. It is great. And finally, the Endurance of Terror, because there are some times I just want my Titans to keep on the table that little bit longer. There we have it. Uh, what my deck of 20 would look like. I mean, really, it's going to be a deck of 16, because four of the cards I can't take in the same deck. But, yeah, you get them. You get the basics. Uh, I also said fun far too much, but I do find Titanicus a great deal of fun. So, yeah, have fun. Um, Right. I think we'll move on to close the show out. So, if you have questions or communications you wish to be included in the next episode, please email me at god.engine.cast at gmail.com. You can reach out to me through Facebook. I'm the God Engine on Facebook. I've got a Facebook page. Or you can message me through Twitter now. I am at CastEngine. Going to be tweeting and posting on Facebook as much as I can. Uh, Probably post once a day to try and build this community. Um, Next week's show is going to cover the much-anticipated and much-requested Legio Ordax, the Wolves. Uh, I'm going to be reading up the necessary stuff and getting that out in about a week. Uh, Yeah. So until then, I wish you all well and good fortune.